We continue in our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament book of Hebrews. If you make your way to the most difficult book in the New Testament, I believe, and the most difficult chapter in the most difficult book, chapter 7. Some would contend that chapter 6 is the uh, most difficult part when it talks about that uh, if you um, fall away, how are you going to be renewed under repentance and seeing that you put, uh, have to crucify afresh the Son of God, put him to an open shame. I'm convinced chapter 7, dealing with Melchizedek, is what is most challenging for us, mostly Gentiles, to understand. And today we're going to look in verses 11 through 22 at a message that I've titled The Old Way and the New Way, Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 22. But before we get to that, I'm going to go back and earn my paycheck from last week because I didn't earn it last week in not doing a very good job at all at delivering verses 1 through 10. You all were very gracious and kind uh, in how you responded to me, but um, uh, I didn't cover it to the degree that I need to. And so we're going to, by way of uh, review, revisit verses 1 through 10. And so the first half of this morning, message time, will be in review. So it's a long introduction with a very short message. Let's look at Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10, which we studied last week and gain a better understanding of it um, this week. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people, according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham." But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction or without any debate, the less is blessed of the better. Verse 8. And here men that die receive tithes, but there is he, but there he, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, the reason I wanted to review this today is that there were some, and if there were some who came to me asking me, there were probably many who who thought this and did not say anything, and it's this. Verse 3 seems to indicate that Melchizedek is eternal, doesn't it? It it says, without father, without mother, without natural descent. Doesn't that mean that he was not an actual man? 
and was an angel or was a Christophany, that is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And that is not an absurd position because there are solid Bible commentators who do hold to that. I am not one who holds to that. I am convinced that he was actually a man, a human being, and he was a type of Christ. He, he, he painted a picture of what Christ ultimately fulfilled. And let me offer a number of reasons why and help to clear up maybe uh, something that I did not uh, spend enough time on or didn't explain very well last week. Notice in verse 3, speaking of Melchizedek, he was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Well, that sure sounds like he is self-existent. That sounds like he is actually God, a Christophany, continuing on, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now, how can I say, pretty dogmatically, and I'm convinced, that this was actually a man, actually a human? Well, verse 4 says as much. Now, consider how great this man was. It actually says it there that this was an actual person. What's more, in verse 1, we're given a job description. He was a priest centuries before the Levitical priesthood, and he was personally appointed by God. He was a priest of God, of the true God, because this was a righteous man, uh, and he was also king of an actual city, Salem, which ended up the name being changed to Jerusalem, the city of peace. Well, you can't very well be a king of an actual city. Uh, it doesn't follow of uh, an actual earthly city and not be an actual person who, who, who likely grew up there, that the people knew he had uh, family and all. Um, and so that is not likely at all uh, that it would be just somebody who just blew in instantaneously and became the king and who was, in fact, functioned as a priest of God. What's more, thirdly, in, in this review of why I'm convinced that he was an actual man, is that a priest had to actually be a person, a human, so that he could represent humans before the throne of God. That's why Jesus did not come just as God, but he came as the God-man. He came, became as 100% man so that he could actually represent man before the throne of God. Jesus was a man. Amen? Do we believe that? Yes, he absolutely was. He was God incarnate, God in the flesh. And he must have been that, or he could not have adequately represented mankind before the throne of God. Now, is there an apparent problem with what I've just said? There certainly is an apparent problem. It looks like there's a problem, problem because of verse 3. seems to pretty clearly say that Melchizedek was eternal. It looks like this had to have been a Christophany. It was not. Let me tell you what it is. It's a simile. S-I-M-I-L-E. That is the key point here. It is, now, we communicate in language. We always have communicated in language. Oral language, written language, uh, unspoken words, for instance. We communicate in language, and words mean something, and words matter. And there's a part of speech, it's uh, very common, very well known, 
that is a simile. But just in case you have forgotten from 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years, your middle school English class, a simile, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is this. Quote, a figure of speech, that is, a figure of speech is something that represents something else. A figure of speech involving the comparison of one thing with another thing of a different kind, used to make a description more emphatic or vivid. For instance, and this is what's given in the dictionary, he was as brave as a lion. It's not saying when we use a simile like that, he is a lion, he was a lion, he looks like a lion, he, he smells like a lion, he is carnivorous like a lion, of course, unless you're describing me, um, as I am, but he is as brave as a lion. That is a simile. And so, folks, here's the tip-off. Whenever you see an apparent or an obvious comparison with words such as, like as, or as if, or like unto, or anything along that line, as it were, then that is a simile. It's comparing two unlike entities so that you might gain a better understanding. Uh, It's one thing to say, that was a brave man. But it's even more to say, that that man was brave as a lion, like unto a lion, as if he were a lion. Do you all follow that? That is what this is. And how do I know that is what this is? Because verse 3 tells us that is what this is. Look at the end of verse 3. He didn't have beginning of days or, nor end of life, but was made the Son of God? No, he, he wasn't made the Son of God. He was made what? Like unto, like as, uh, like the Son of God abideth a priest continually. So the problem is resolved by understanding that this is a simile. It wasn't saying he was the Son of God. He was saying he was made like unto. God says, I'm drawing a picture so that you might see Christ millennia before he actually came on the scene. And what he would do, who he would be, uh, and and the like. And so this is a simile. And so that begs the question. I ask the question for myself because I wasn't just going to share this without any any support or backing of it. Are there other uses of simile in Scripture? I am seeing it everywhere I turn now now that I have really looked into it and studied it. For instance, Jesus said time and time again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes on and uses example after example. I don't even know how many different uh, uh, figures of speech he used to describe what kingdom life would, would be. When we get there, and he told us ahead of time, it is like those are similes. It's not saying, it's not saying that the kingdom is this. It's saying the kingdom of heaven is like unto so that we can get a better idea of that. Uh, the Apostle Paul used it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And for, so you have Jesus using it. You have the Apostle Paul using it. You have the writer of Hebrews using it. In 1 Thessalonians 5 too, it says, For your, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Well, we know what it means for a thief in the night to come, and so he wanted us to understand, uh, get a better understanding of something that we don't know, we've not ever experienced, that is the coming of the Lord, but we do understand 
what it is for a thief to come in the night. So it is using that simile, like as, to help us better understand. Peter also made use of simile by the Spirit of God, of course. In 1 Peter 1, verse 24, For all flesh is as grass. Your skin, your flesh, and the temptations that attack you, it's not grass. It's like grass like the, 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 the vegetation that grows. And all the glory of man is not a flower, but it's as the flower that grows. The grass withers, the flower falls off and fades away. It's using it to compare side by side. Two unlike things, glory and grass. Flower and, uh, and, um, and whatever the other comparison is here, they're unlike, they're different, but it, they're put side by side and with the, with the wording, like as, like unto, as if, so that we might know. So, God the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Hebrews to use a simile in order to show that Christ is the eternal high priest and the order or the office of Melchizedek is the one he would fulfill, meaning... He isn't temporary like the Levitical priesthood. He is more than that. He's better than that. He's greater than that. Of course, that's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. Secondly, by way of review, Melchizedek was presented as greater than the sons of Levi, than Levi and the rest of the Levitical priesthood in that the father, the patriarch, Abraham, gave a tithe gave one-tenth of the best of the spoils. You remember from last week, talked about that word is the best. It, it, it's the top of the heap. There's a heap, there's a, there's a bundle, but it's the top of the heap is what Abraham gave to Melchizedek. Uh, in fact, by virtue of Levi being having been in the loins of Abraham, that is, in the, would, would ultimately be in the genealogy of Abraham, he also, Levi, tithed to Abraham. That's what that text tells, uh, uh, tithed to uh, Melchizedek. Hence, Melchizedek is greater because a sacrificial offering is given from the lesser to the greater, um, which is why Christ uh, made himself as, uh, uh, as a picture of sin. He became sin for us. He made that offering by placing himself Uh, condescending and putting himself in that position. So, in this text, Christ is greater, the greater high priest, than the priests of Levi because he was in the order of Melchizedek who was greater than Abraham. Now, a side note. This doesn't deal with the actual teaching of the priesthood, but it's interesting, I think, that of all the places in Scripture, in the New Testament, that is, where you can make a case for New Testament tithing, that is tithing just like was done in the Old Testament, it would be this passage. Six of the ten verses in verses 1 through 10 deal with tithing. And that tithing took place, you tell me, before or after the law with Abraham and Melchizedek? Before the law of Moses. And so there are those who argue that you are to tithe because tithing was practiced before the law of Moses. And in fact, it was practiced. It was practiced right there in Genesis chapter 14. Um, so what's the, what ought to be our position? Well, uh, tithing 
was formalized and systematized in the law of Moses. We know that in the books uh, of, uh, of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and all. Um, but yet tithing was practiced before the law. Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law, so what are we to do? Well, let me tell you what I do. I practice 10% plus in giving and, and have for 43 years since, since I've been saved. Just about that entire time. I, maybe maybe uh, there's been a time where, where I haven't, but just about that entire time. But I do not practice it as a legal obligation, but as a worship offering. And so I, Christ has fulfilled the law, and that includes the law, the systematic law of tithing, but that doesn't erase the principle that Abraham gave to the greater person, the greater one, namely Melchizedek, the top of the heap tied to him right off the top before the law. So I like that principle as a practice in my life, and I, I commend it to you as well. So when you give, uh, I would follow the model in Scripture of the 10% offering, but not because you are fulfilling the law. You can't fulfill the law. The, the, uh, the, the letter kills. It's the Spirit that gives life. So do it as a free will offering from your heart. I hope those uh, that uh, is not contradictory. It's not in my heart. I'm able to conflate that and, and, uh, and it'd be just fine in my life. I trust that it is with you as well. Now, that was the introduction. Not too long. Not too bad. Hopefully it helped. Melchizedek was a man. Uh, that's, what, that's what we're to get from that. Amen. <laughs> okay, verses 11 through 22 for today. If, therefore, perfection or completion, maturity, were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron or, or Levi synonymously? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi, to, uh, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. In other words, no one outside of the li- tribe of Levi was to work at the altar, was to serve. Only a Levitical priest. You all follow that? But it says the one we're talking about wasn't of that tribe. Look in, in verse 14. For it is evidence, obviously everybody, that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Well, that's not in the law. Judah is not to be bringing an offering. Judah is not to represent God, other people to God. And it is yet far more evident, for after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily an annulling, or a putting away of the commandment, going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness of it. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw near unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made a priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath. By him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety, a guarantee of a better testament or covenant. Can you appreciate chapter 7 is about the hardest chapter (laughs) that you've ever encountered? Let's work through it a little bit. First of all, verses 11 and 19 tell us of the inability of the old way. This message is the old way and the new way. And we see the inability of the old way. Now the reference here, notice in verse 11, the reference to the law um, uh, or the, uh, the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law, the Mosaic law, is not a reference to all of the law of Moses, apparently. It doesn't seem to be. But it's addressing specifically that portion of the Mosaic law which dealt with the Levitical priesthood because it went on to describe the parameters of the Levitical priesthood. Had to come from this tribe, couldn't come from Judah, and the like. And so it's talking about the law regarding the priests. And in short, it says that the law fell short. It was inadequate, not because it was wrong or sinful, God gave it, but because it was placed in the hands of man, and man fails. So clearly the law did not bring someone into a complete relationship with God because of of man's inability to keep the law. Man could not keep the law. In fact, well, we'll get it. In fact, look at this. Look at this again in, in verse 15. For, and it is yet more evident, for after the similitude, what does that word sound like? Simile. After the comparison of the two priesthoods, uh, or through the course of the comparison of the two priesthoods, Christ came. So once again, we see it pointing out, being pointed out, that Melchizedek, actually a man, he actually was the head of the order uh, until he, that was fulfilled in Christ. Just wanted to make another point uh, of that. But the law, the inability uh, to, for the law to be kept because of man's um, sin and man's uh, lack of perfection. It says that in Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in sinful flesh. No. In the likeness of. Hmm. What did we just run into again? What is that called? A simile. Christ did not sin, but he came like a sinner. That is, he came as a man and was ended up being tempted in all points, yet without sin. So, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned the curse of sin in fulfilling the righteousness of the law. So, what is it then which secures a right standing with God. Faith. Faith has always secured, and only that has secured a right standing with God. It's never been the law. In fact, it says in Galatians 3, 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. That is, it was our teacher. Uh, it, was our, it was our tutor to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law is a mirror, and it shows me my sinfulness, my dirtiness, and my need for cleansing. But the, law, the mirror isn't what cleanses you. You don't take the mirror down off the wall and scrub your face with the mirror. 
Lots of bad things could happen if you tried to do that. Use the mirror to show you where the dirt is so that you can run and, and, and get soap and water and, and uh, wash that dirt off your face. Similarly, the law is that mirror. It's that schoolmaster directing us to the place of forgiveness by faith in Christ. So, this text tells us the law cannot save. The inability of the old way, the Levitical priesthood. And then, secondly, we see in verses 12 through 18, the need for another priesthood. Well, if that wouldn't work, if, if the Levitical priesthood wouldn't work in doing the job completely, then apparently we need another priesthood. And that is precisely what this is saying. This point springs from the end of verse 11. Notice at the end of verse 11, as well as verse 15, notice it says, now you've got to look at it, there'll be another rise after the order um, of Melchizedek. Do you see that another priest should rise? Do you see that in verse 11? Hold your hand up, shake your head. Do you see that? Another priest. Look at verse 15. After, and it is yet more evident, for after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth what? Another priest. Everybody see another in verse 15? Both of those are the exact same word, and it's from the root heteron, which is where we get the word heterosexual, for instance. And it is another of a different kind. We have, just like if you are heterosexual, you, you are married to another person, but another gender person, right? I'm a man, I'm married to a woman. Aren't you grateful, amen? That's heteron, and that's what this is. It's a priest, he's a priest, but he's a priest of a different kind. That is what, there are things which are another of the same kind. That is not the word here. We believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture. The very words are chosen that God intended to be chosen. So this is another of a different kind, a different kind of priest. Another priesthood is needed. And so the priest was needed who could get the job done. And so Jesus headed up a priesthood of an altogether different kind. His was heavenly, Levi was earthly. His was continual, Levi was um, uh, was uh, temporary. And so it was another of a different kind. Notice also, the writer identifies the head of this priesthood, for it's evident that the Lord sprang out of Judah. Um, the head of this priesthood was, in fact, our Lord. It's a personal, just another side note, because we're interpreting as we're going through the book of, of Hebrews. I'm learning this as you are learning it, but you remember uh, uh, in the, first, the introductory, uh, introductory messages of the book of Hebrews, the problem with interpreting it is, who's the author and to whom is, is it written? Is it written to save people? Is it written to lost people? Is it written to people uh, who had come up just short? This one right here, it's um, in verse 14, our Lord, it's a personal possessive pronoun, indicating that the author is writing to people that he believed were saved people. Again, we see the intention of the book of Hebrews uh, is, is addressing Jews who had received Christ as Messiah. Now, just like I am preaching right now to believers, I'm not deluded, deceived, thinking there's not a lost person in here. Almost certainly there's a lost person in here. I understand that, you understand that, and the writer of Hebrews understood it. But it, he was intending that believers would have their faith strengthened when he wrote this book. There's just another indication of it. No extra charge for that at all. 
the writer understood, the recipients, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. Notice, he sprang out of Judah. Moses didn't say anything about the priests coming out of Judah, but prophecy did. Uh, Well after Moses, in Isaiah 11, verse 1 and verse 10, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an instant of the people. To it the Gentiles shall shall seek and his rest shall be glorious. There's coming one uh, out of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of who? Say it loud. David of the tribe of Judah. Born in Bethlehem. You see how it's just falling together? And this is the high priest out of the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. No, Melchizedek the man was not eternal. Melchizedek the office is eternal. And we see that through use of simile. Thomas Constable observed in these verses that they summarize the argument that God has superseded the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law, the covenant, and he has replaced the old system, the former commandments, with a better new system that can do what the old one could not do, namely, bring us into intimate relationship with God through which we draw near to God. So that's a good summary of the need for another priesthood. The inability of the old way, it didn't work, never would work, never will work. Therefore, we need a new priesthood if we're ever going to have permanent, continual, forever representation before the throne of God. So, what did God do about it? Well, he established the new way. And we see that in verses 20 through 22. Um, Look at how the new way of eternal life was established. God swore by himself. He made an oath. Now, look at this. Be real careful of this. And inasmuch as not without an oath... He was made priest. In other words, with an oath is the way to say that. For those priests, the Levitical priesthood, verse 21, were made without an oath. In other words, God didn't swear by himself that this is going to do the job. This is the end all of of all things. He did not do that. He did not vow that that was the case. But he did with the Melchizedekian priesthood. He did say and made an oath and the Lord swore and he's not going to repent. He's not going to change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So by this Jesus was made a surety. Do you have another word in verse 22? Surety? How many have surety in verse 22? You have a guarantee or he's the guarantor? Good. Some of you have. That's a good word for that as well. He himself is the one who is guaranteeing our security. And for how long? Forever. He's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse 22, because of this, Jesus being the guarantor, the one who provides the guarantee of a better testament and covenant. going to be more on this uh, to share in, in weeks to come. But the new covenant is provided, and I shared, I shared this in detail years ago from 1 Corinthians 15, 
the new covenant, I'm convinced, is provided specifically for Israel. But all who believe, that is, we Gentiles who believe, get in on the prophets, get in on the benefits, get in on the fruitfulness of it. Let me give you an example. Yesterday afternoon, uh, I officiated the wedding of my nephew, Tim Hepner, and his new bride, Felicia Markovic. Mar- Markovic, you don't know her, she's from another church. And they were married. They were here yesterday. I solemnized it. I, I said, by the authority vested in me, by the ca- county, uh, Jackson County, the state of Missouri, I pronounce you husband and wife. I have that authority, and you are married. And that's actually true. That's according to the law. That's the case. But they were the ones who actually entered into this new covenant. It was just the two of them. I wasn't a part of that new covenant. You weren't a part of that new covenant. Their parents were not a part of the new covenant. Husband, wife, man, woman, you're married. That's the new covenant, the new promise For the rest of this life, they'll stay together. But I got to go to the reception dinner. I wasn't a part of the new covenant, but I sure got in on the goodies. You follow? It's that kind of an idea. More on this in the coming weeks. So, in conclusion, I ask you, relative to this old way and the new way, are you living in the old way? That is sinful, willful without any hope for eternity, directing your own self in life, or have you entered in by faith into the new way of eternal life in Christ? Jesus paid the way, and he provides life for all who will humbly ask him and bow before him. Which way is it? Are you in the old way or are you in the new way? It's going to be one or the other. And it's only by faith in Christ that you can be part of the new and living way which he has provided through what he did on the cross and what he continues to do for us, ever living to be our high priest forever because it's the Melchizedekian order, not the Levitical order. I believe this is the truth of this text. Lord, I'm thankful.